electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everyone. This is The Exchange, and I'm Kelly Evans. Stocks may be down today, but fund managers' optimism isn't. In fact, they're now the most bullish they've been all year. Fade the herd or follow it, we'll debate. Plus, what's the future of travel? We're going to speak with the CEO of TripAdvisor about their big bet on rentals as rival Airbnb gets ready to go public. And Tesla gets in, Berkshire gets out, and the ugly side of multi-class share structures. It's all coming up here, but first to Dom Chu with the markets this hour. Hi, Dom. All right, so Kelly, we've got a little bit of dip buying today because at the lows of the session, early on, just around 10 a.m. Eastern time, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down roughly 430 points. At the highs, that was just within the last hour, we were down roughly about 102, call it there. So towards the higher end of the range so far, still, though, a down day with the Nasdaq outperforming today, just about flat on the day as well. But still, a little bit of that dip buying emerging in midday. We'll see if that carries over in the afternoon trade. Speaking of some of that future of travel, the best performing stocks in the S&P 500 today have to do with the most beaten up stocks during the COVID pandemic. Think about travel. Think about office space. Think about what's happening with retail. SL Green, big office space company there, up 6.5%. Norwegian Cruise Lines, up 5.5%. And Ralph Lauren, up 5% as well. So beating up retail, beating up travel, beating up offices, doing some pretty good work here today. And then, we don't often show it, but we're going to show it today. It's Bitcoin prices. Now, there are very vast measures of pricing, I guess, different exchanges and whatnot for Bitcoin prices. Still, though, 17796 we're closing on an 18,000 per token. The reason why it's important, you've got to go all the way back to December of 2017 for the record highs that we saw. And that was just a hair under 20,000 per token. Remember, near the lows here in that pullback, we were talking closer to 3,000 per token. So again, a big move in Bitcoin. You can be sure it's catching the traders' attention for a lot of folks out there. We'll see if that carries over as well, Kelly. Back over to you. Dom, I am glad you highlighted it. I I did see that today, and I think uh, it's important to note that we're getting back to those all-time highs. Dom Chu with the latest for us. Now, despite this whole move lower today in stocks, bullishness overall is booming. Check out some of these stats from Bank of America's new Global Fund Manager survey. November was the most bullish month of the year. This is after we've rebounded all the way back to the highs. GDP expectations surged to a 20-year high. Cash levels have fallen back below pre-COVID levels in terms of people's portfolios. And there was a big jump in exposure to small caps, emerging markets, and stocks overall, all of which are those kind of classic risk-on segments. Should you follow the herd or fade these moves, let's bring in Jeff Krumpelman. He's the chief investment strategist at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Also, Katerina Simonetti joins me. She's senior vice president at Morgan Stanley, and it's great to have you both here. All right, Jeff, we'll kick it off with you. Follow the herd. Well, I, you know, we, we don't follow the herd very often, I would say, if you look over the past several years and have been contrarian going all the way back to March. We were very positive when uh, most folks were negative, taking price targets down. We're going to be in a bear market forever. And I would say that our message has been pretty consistent. Hold your ground. Don't sell. But I think you need near-term caution and should expect heightened volatility at this point. Longer term, we are positive, next 12 to 15 months, and we're very balanced with a blend of both 
growth and value that we think is very appropriate. A lot of good themes out there, and you never know when they're exactly going to kick in. We think it's early for the spit and the wind stocks, but we still like the growth stocks. It's broadening out within technology and other areas. You don't need to own the fangs. And then within the more cyclically oriented stocks, we do find great opportunities in industrials and materials. And a nice blend, I think, is appropriate okay. versus a green view. I want to come back and ask you about a few of those themes. But so maybe perhaps your enthusiasm is a little bit more tempered overall relative uh, to the rest of the fund manager universe. Katerina, what about you? Kelly, it is nice to see such optimistic reports. And quite frankly, Morgan Stanley for uh, quite some time that we've been in the bull market since March, despite the natural volatility, despite of the fact that we had this uh, slight correction in September, and we're optimistic about 2021. In fact, we believe that the name of the game for 21 is who can deliver the earnings. And it is natural that investors are strategically positioning their portfolio for the post-COVID recovery in 21. Katerina, I think it's interesting that one of the areas that you guys are bullish on is companies with China exposure. Why is that and who is that? Well, there, there are a number of sectors that we are looking at. And of course, you know, all of this comes into play. But again, you know, in my opinion, it all comes down to earnings. And we it's very much the stock pickers market. And we focus on the companies and specifically the sectors that are that stand to benefit from the earnings that haven't been priced in yet. This is very much a stock pickers market, and we expect a lot of volatility before the year end because they present buying opportunities. Jeff, I don't know if you have a view on China per se, but you certainly have a lot of individual stock names. I'm looking at the healthcare space in particular because that's an area where we've been talking about how Berkshire uh, has added some big names to its portfolio there. What's your justification? Why a name like Bristol Myers? Well, again, it goes back to company specifics. If you look at their just uh, portfolio product profile, the, the uh, opportunities that they have within oncology are very exciting, as well as some um, other opportunities and new indications. So you're, you've got a stock that's priced at you know, mid-teens with um, close to uh, double-digit growth rates with a wonderful dividend, a great balance sheet, and uh, some nice product momentum. But I would say also yeah. within technology, one of the big things that's going on right now are folks saying, hey, can this tech thing continue? And we find a number of stocks within technology that are priced also at teens with teens-like growth rate that are non-FANG, um, F5, Micron, you see Qualcomm and others. These are growth at reasonable price right now. So that's part of the reason why I think you don't abandon growth, whether you find it in healthcare or you find it in some of these technology names as the market broadens out. All right. Fair enough. Jeff Krumpelman, Katerina Simonetti, thank you for weighing in on this today. We appreciate it. Well, we were just talking about healthcare. Let's stick with the stock story of the day, which are huge declines in the country's biggest pharmacy names. This after Amazon has launched its own online pharmacy and a discount card that can be used at other pharmacies. It's especially bad timing for GoodRx, which recently went public. The stock today down more than 20 percent. Bertha Coombs is here with the latest for us. Bertha? 
Kelly, we've sort of seen this coming for the last three years. Amazon's new online pharmacy is in network with most insurers building on its $1 billion acquisition of PillPack. While it won't have physical pharmacies, if you need a prescription right away, you can download a card and get it filled at a drugstore. You can also talk to a pharmacist virtually. Now, Prime members get free two-day shipping and a quick comparison on cash prices when you pay without insurance, putting it in direct competition with GoodRx, the best known of these cash discount players. To get a look at the comparisons, you have to open an account. And after entering the last four digits of my social and date of birth this morning, I was surprised when the system automatically generated my insurance membership number, which makes you wonder about your personal data. TJ Parker, the founder of PillPack, tells CNBC the experience inside the pharmacy is separate and distinct from Amazon.com, and that data will be stored in compliance with health privacy rules and not used for marketing. But Kelly, it was really kind of surprising that I didn't have to enter in my insurance data. I know. I, now I want to try it. Uh, it's kind of surprise, kind of creepy, is what I was going to say. But Bertha, also this highlights uh, its rivalry with Walmart. You know, Walmart just reported those earnings this morning uh, that had everybody raising their eyebrows. Uh, how much does this encroach on their territory? Well, Walmart is also one of the biggest players when it comes to pharmacy. Uh, interestingly, they were asked about it on the call, and uh, Doug McMillan and John Ferner, who's the head of, of uh, Walmart U.S., both said that, look, people want an omni-channel sort of experience. Just as they're doing with the rest of their shopping, they want to be able to come in store and talk to somebody when they need to, and they want to be able to maybe pick up quickly. They can do that in a contactless way, and they also have mail order. The real impact here is what it's going to mean for GoodRx, SimpleCare, and some of these others that are doing these discounts. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking with Doug Hirsch, who is the GoodRx CEO at the CNBC Disruptor 50 Summit. Just incredible timing. Uh, you can still sign up for that over at CNBC events. It'll be interesting to hear how he reacts. Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it. Bertha, thank you very much. Our Bertha Coombs following this story today. How will Amazon's push into the pharmacy business shake up the industry? My next guest says it's a double negative for the retailers. Joining me now is John Ransom. He's managing director at Raymond James. John, it's great to have you today. And um, tell me about this kind of two, uh, this double blow that you see uh, to the retailers and what options they have to respond here. Uh, thanks and good afternoon. Um, so the two negatives are, number one, only about 5% of pharmacy volume today is done by mail. Uh, and number two, you know, GoodRx, as successful as they've been, they only have about 5 million members. You know, there are 126 million Amazon Prime members. So potentially you have another army of consumers armed with discount cards that's uh, at the margin are a negative. Now, now, it's important to realize one thing, though. The discount card is not as big a negative as you might think because the drug retailers hardly do any prescriptions that aren't already, the price is not already set by a third-party insurance company. Discount card prices are set by insurance companies, which is kind of a big surprise in the model here. So that's not the issue. They're not, in other words, we're not going to take a bunch of $100 transactions and turn them into $10 transactions. The big risk here is that can Amazon change consumer behavior and can it move share from retail to online like it's done in other areas? And I think that's the big unknown. Um, 
And, you know, we'll do some survey right. work with our partner in tech, but that, that's the thing I'm more worried about. It's not so much the discount card, but it's the, can they shift share to online? And looking through here, correct me where I'm wrong, you have a hold on uh, Walgreens, a buy on CVS. Uh, who's relatively best and worst positioned to deal with this? And it's interesting to point out, and you've made this point, that you know, for years people thought Amazon couldn't really push aggressively into this space because they, they wouldn't find they had willing partners uh, with the pharmacies. And today's news is proving that totally wrong. Yeah, it's, it was clever because these are Cygnus pharmacy network in, uh, in the division uh, that they partner with Cigna. So what Cigna is doing is they're lending Amazon their cash card prices and they're lending Amazon their pharmacy network. But we talked to Cigna today. They're also maintaining their relationship with GoodRx. So this PBM cash card business is sort of healthcare 301. It's a little bit complicated, but uh, it, you know, what Amazon's done is they found a partner um, to, to, to build out the network and to uh, provide the prices. So let's spin this forward. Uh, how do you think this business evolves over the next couple of years? Amazon, A, takes some share, B, moves this share to online, and wh how, where does that leave the incumbents? I mean, is this, the, is this yeah. a good kind of industry shakeup, um, or is this something that just kind of eats away at uh, everybody else's share of the pie? So I, I think the initial thing that will happen is Amazon probably will convert some of the online share from PBMs to Amazon. And, and the reason for that is if you've ever tried to use the interface of a PBM, such as Caremark or um, Optum, and not to pick on them, but the, they are clunky interfaces. It takes a week to get the, the drugs. So Amazon, with this two-day free delivery and the slickest interface on Earth, they'll move some of that share. The, the other piece, though, is I'm less convinced they'll move a ton of retail share because uh, people have lots of reasons for going to the drugstore to get their script. There's a lot of acute scripts. As you know, if your kid has an earache, you're not going to wait. Um, people on multiple meds uh, tend, to, tend to go. 34% of scripts are consumed by the elderly. So we're less convinced that we're going to eat dramatically into the existing retail traffic. And it's, Kelly, as you know, it's not new that you can get scripts mailed to you at home. It was new. I mean, Instacart with groceries, some of that was actually new. The fact that you can get scripts delivered is not new. This is just a better way to deliver them. So that's that's where I think it'll eat into first. I'm I'm still jury's still out to see what will what will happen with existing retail share. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and again, anyone who's had experience, you know, moving and finding a farm, I mean, it, it's not a great experience whether it's in store or online. So I can see why they find this massive opportunity. John, thanks for joining me today. Appreciate it. John right, Ransom is with Raymond James. Coming up, it's a trend investors don't seem to love so much, so why isn't there more pushback? Companies going public with three, even four different share classes. We're going to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. Plus, TripAdvisor doubling down on vacation rentals as rival Airbnb gets ready to IPO. We'll talk to Trip's new CEO about the new strategy. Uh, I'm sorry, Trip's CEO about the new strategy about holiday bookings and their new subscription service. We're back after this. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. 
specialised across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. DoorDash and Airbnb leading the rush of companies to go public before year end. Another thing they have in common, multi-class share structures, which are quickly becoming the norm. Leslie Picker joins me now with more details. Leslie? Hey, Kelly, that's right. It, it may sound like a first-class problem, but founders are increasingly collecting investor cash while giving them unequal voting rights. And it's not just your run-of-the-mill dual-class share structure we're talking about here. Now, triple and even quadruple classes are becoming more mainstream. Just in the last few days, for example, DoorDash revealed that it's going public with Class A, B, and C stock. Airbnb disclosed an S1 with four classes of stock, A, B, C, and H. The H class go going toward an endowment for hosts on its platform. In recent years, issuers have gotten more creative with their classes of shares. Snap was the first to issue non-voting shares in its debut back in 2017. Earlier this year, Palantir introduced an F class of shares that allowed its founders to sell stock and still maintain their voting rights. Now, institutional investors are often opposed to reg relegated control, and studies have shown that multiple classes of stock can lead to weaker corporate governance, less diversity, and even in certain cases, underperformance. Controlled companies argue, however, that these structures prevent management from needing to bend to short-term needs of the market, giving strategies time to play out. Cal. All right, Leslie, appreciate it. Leslie Picker, the jury's still out on the merits of multi-class uh, structure companies for investors since so many are recent IPOs. Should there be more pushback on this trend and should investors avoid these kind of listings? Joining me now is Duncan Davidson. He's a partner at Bullpen Capital. Duncan, it's good to see you again. And can we paint all of these different share structures with the same brush or are there specific kinds that people need to stay away from? You could paint them all with the same brush. They all have the same goal to maintain control. And it's a big question in the VC community. Do we want this to happen? But when a star founder comes in, you let it happen. <laughs> this reminds me a little bit of the debates we've had over the likes of Facebook, but also in fairness, I mean, media companies have been doing this as well for a long, long time. So in that sense, it's not new uh, or unique to Silicon Valley, but there's something that goes a step beyond when you see what Palantir, Airbnb and DoorDash are doing. We're not talking about two classes anymore. We're talking about three and four. Uh, how much more of this do you expect? I think creativity will expand it to stupid levels. Look, the point about this, though, is your introduction is exactly right. People are afraid that they'll be prematurely put into a profit path when they want to grow. Understand the great Internet land grab is on. Huge franchises are being created right now. So this is not the time for people to manage to profit. They should instead grow at all costs. So as I put it, let the founders channel their inner Steve Jobs or Elon Musk and create a great company. That's the choice you're making. Do you bet on that or do you bet on going to profit? You should bet on growth. But is there a, a fundamental principle here that's getting lost? I mean, it seems to me what's happening is that companies are basically trying to conflate two things to say we want the control uh, you know, of being private with the benefits of being public. So we're going to give people access uh, to our shares, but not let them have any control. Well, the whole point 
of these structures is that investors are owners in the company, that they have a say, right? I mean, aren't we turning some of these fundamental uh, issues in finance on their head? I think what the tech people are afraid of is the following. In general, there's been no second act in a tech company. When Steve Jobs left Apple, it was fading. He had to come back. There's a, a number of examples where when the founding energy goes away, the company does not take off like crazy. It sort of fades. So the bet you're making is to keep that energy in the company and not prematurely take it out. What these companies really are worried about is suddenly a corporate raider comes in or a PE firm tries to strip all the profit out, increase the dividend, et cetera, and they never will ever achieve their second act and growth. Now, it won't always work. Some of these companies will fade and screw up and you wish you could take get rid of the founders. But you're making a bet right now, the internet land grab bet versus profit. So right now, the time is make the bet. So last question, Duncan, what would your advice be to investors? Do they just take whatever the company gives them because that's what they're fundamentally betting on and what they want exposure to? Or should they, you know, let these opportunities pass by and kind of hope that somehow pressure will be put to bear and, and change the minds of uh, this new crop of, of corporate leaders? Well, I think we're in a rare moment of investing history. I mean, when you look at these tech companies, it's not clear what replaces them. You create a franchise and internet land grab, you might own it for decades. This is the future of Fortune 50, if you want to think of it that way. Um, so this is not a time to try to manage it and make it a little better. The public stock market will discipline these companies anyway. You can look at Google right now. Google never really came up with the second act, despite starting this whole thing with control. So what's going to happen to Google? Well, it may split up into several companies. It may do something different. So over time, the pressure will still be there, even though it's not specifically to take out the founders and to take over the company. So the public markets do discipline and companies without having raiders come in and strip everybody out of the company. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, it, I, it does seem that way. Uh, so I guess we shouldn't expect anything but this trend to continue for some time. Duncan, thanks for joining me. Good to get your perspective today. Thank Duncan you. Davidson on these new IPOs. Take a quick break. Coming up, it's Berkshire's big rotation, the company moving out of banks and investing in another big area of the market. We've got the details on that. Plus, Tesla soaring on the news that it will be added to the S&P 500. Its market cap is now on the verge of topping Walmart's and Visa's. Tesla is at $416 billion, Walmart's at $431 billion, and Visa's at $450 billion. Is this a reason to jump in or jump ship? Stay with us. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. 
Visit OneTravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. Welcome back to the exchange down day in the markets, but we're well off the lows when the Dow was down 430. We're down 161 right now, about a half percent decline. The S&P is only down a quarter percent and the Nasdaq is positive by 17 points. Still, it's more red than green. If you take a look across the sectors, pretty much real estate is the only sector that's trending positive right now. Uh, it's up just a hair. Meanwhile, uh, utilities and materials are the biggest laggards right now uh, across the market. Utilities down about one percent. Time for a news update. Let's get back to headquarters with our Sue Herrera. Hi, Sue. Hi, Kelly. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. America's health care providers are urging President Trump to quickly share COVID data with President-elect Biden's transition team. In a letter, the heads of the American Hospital Association, American Medical Association, and American Nurses Association write that sharing real-time information will save, quote, countless lives, end quote. As Secretary of State Mike Pompeo toured an Istanbul mosque today, he was greeted by masked protesters, a visual reminder that a second COVID wave is hitting Turkey. And now President Erdogan is imposing tighter restrictions to fight the disease, including partial lockdowns nationwide. And here's some visual evidence of the severe impact of COVID in the Midwest. Take a look at that. A line of cars in Chicago waiting for tests, and it goes on and on and on and on for about a mile. We actually don't have time to show you the entire video because it goes around, turns two corners, and circles back. That's just where we are in this pandemic, wow. Kelly. I know. It's pretty sobering. I had not seen that. Holy cow. Yeah. Holy cow. All right, Sue, thank you. You got it. Pictures worth a thousand words, video worth 10,000 in this case. Uh, coming up, uh, Berkshire bets big on healthcare. Tesla joins the big boys in the S&P, plus movie theaters making another attempt to save their business. It's all ahead in rapid fire. Take a look at shares of Home Depot as well. The stock falling despite reporting a solid earnings beat and a 24% jump in same store sales. Just massive, but still, it's been one of the best stocks of the year. Company says it plans to permanently increase compensation for its hourly workers as well. Yesterday, they agreed to buy HD supply. It's been a busy week for HD. It's down 3% today. We're back in two. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Leslie Picker, Michael Santoli, and Julia Borston. Welcome, everybody. First up, it's finally happening. Tesla joining the S&P 500 on Monday, December 21st. The stock shooting higher today. It's on pace for the best day in two months. At its current valuation, this would be one of the 10 most valuable stocks in the index. Tesla is up more than 500% in the past year. We bring in special guest Phil LeBeau. Phil, for more on a, a big milestone here, but one that, that is kind of hard to believe just how big Tesla's gotten and how valuable. Well, it's just because it's happened primarily over the last three years. I mean, this stock went public 10 years ago. And if you would have told somebody back then, look, Tesla is going to be in the S&P 500 someday, they would have scoffed at you. And they probably would have scoffed at you up until two or three years ago. But it was the beginning of the Model 3 deliveries. That's really when sales took off. Those sales were important because with those sales came the EV tax credits, which they then are 
able to and have been able to sell to their competitors. And you'll hear the critics say, look, the sales of those tax credits, that's the only reason that they were able to turn a profit over the last five quarters. I think that's a little disingenuous to say that's the only reason. Um, but that's the one criticism that you will hear from people saying, okay, they made profitability so they can be in the index. But really, if it wasn't for the EV tax credits, they wouldn't be there. Yes, I know we hear that a lot, and Mike, we've talked about that a lot. But Mike, this this share price reaction is pretty interesting to me because I could just as easily believe that Tesla would sell off on this news on kind of a buy the rumor, sell the fact move. But that's not at all what we're seeing today. Well, I think what happened is uh, a couple of months ago, S and P by not including Tesla, which was widely seen as a snub because the stock had run up in advance of the prospect of that happening. I think S and P kind of wrung that. Uh, that expectation out of the stock to some degree. And the, the stock actually has calmed down uh, largely. It was at 500 bucks at the peak back there in the summer. So it does seem as if, you know, this is a pretty decent pop. I mean, it's bigger than the typical gain you'll see in, a, in any stock when they go into the S&P. I do think we have to keep that in mind. Multiple stocks go into this index every year. We don't talk about it a lot. Usually it's a blip. The issue here is it's so big and, and it has repercussions about the rest of the index and the mechanics of how it goes in. It's not so much that it's a rare thing to be uh, have this honor bestowed on a good sized company like this. And finally, Phil, before we go, I mean, I think I heard that this makes uh, Elon Musk the third richest person in the world. Is that <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah, well, on paper, it makes him the third richest person in the world, and they continue wow. to move forward. Remember, he's got that pay package set up so that the next tranche when it comes, I don't know exactly how much uh, it will bestow upon him, but in terms of stock awards, that's the key here, is they've been able to hit those, those pay metrics that when they first set it up a couple of years ago, and I think it was $50 billion over the uh, over the 12 metrics, people said, oh, you'll never hit any of those. You won't hit any of those. And now yep. they've already done it twice, uh, or he's done it twice. Tesla's it's done wild. it twice. Yes, and that's the key there. Well, and Phil, thank you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thank you, sir, Phil LeBeau. And again, $416 billion. Tesla is approaching Walmart's market cap. It's probably just a trade or two away from that at this point. Uh, Phil, thank you. All right, let's talk some Warren Buffett. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway making a big bet on the drug stocks. We learned in the conglomerate's latest 13F filing they've got new positions in AbbVie, Merck, Pfizer, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Still, Leslie, I, I mean, I, I don't attribute these to Warren per se. I mean, if anything, this portfolio to me with every 13F feels more and more like every other investment firm out there. It's certainly more diversified than it has been in the past. Remember, earlier on in this pandemic, he sold out of airlines. He's been paring back his stake in financials. And again, you're right. We don't know exactly who's behind these specific investments. But Berkshire Hathaway as a whole, I was looking at the history, and I couldn't find an incident going back five years when he invested in these specific pharma stocks. Uh, so it's really interesting play from that standpoint. The question is, uh, does he actually see this space as being undervalued, especially as We've seen some trading around vaccine development and the potential uh, TAM surrounding uh, this space moving forward. It, it'll be interesting to see kind of what the thesis is with Berkshire, how long they really hold on to these stocks. Yeah. Mike, I, I, I have this vision that, you know, Warren kind of lets uh, the fund managers do their thing and just kind of sits back and, and waits to see, like, oh, maybe Apple is a good idea. You know what? I'm, I'm going to kind of personally get involved with that. One. I'm sure he can veto other things, but I, don't you get the feeling that he's almost like, all right, I'll, I'll kind of I'll watch what you guys do. You're going to be running the show soon enough anyway. But, you know, I, it, what I'm really interested in is when Berkshire itself goes and makes this big acquisition they haven't made. And the yeah. most 
the biggest statement they've made this year was when they when Warren himself said, no, I'm, I'm out of the airlines. Charlie, too. They said, we don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic. We don't feel the conviction to buy anything yet. And then here we are with they're buying their own shares back. That's the big thing. Right. They're buying their own shares back at a valuation they think is OK. And, you know, this is very much kind of a uh, a placeholder type portfolio move, it would seem, uh, whether it was Warren or the other folks. Uh, it, it obviously it's a different source of steady dividends and, and decent participation in the market. Maybe there's a demographic overlay. But when you see multiple names in the same sector, it suggests more of a portfolio thinking as opposed to I have an edge. I think this company has something special and we're going to bet on it. Uh, it really seems to be a replacement for some exactly. of the bank exposure. Yeah, no, exactly. They're moving, you know, diversifying somewhat, but it just feels to me it's kind of like, yeah, this is what everybody else does. I want them to be different. Uh, all right, let's move along. Uh, talk about a big win, another big win for streaming. Universal now following up its historic deal with AMC Theaters with an agreement involving another major theater chain, this time Cinemark. The deal shortens the theatrical window from three months to as few as 17 days. Both stocks, Comcast and Cinemark, are slightly higher today. Cinemark is up 4%. Comcast trading above yesterday's record close. It's our parent company as well as being the parent company of Universal. So, Julia, I mean, at this point, this is setting the tone for the future of movie watching, isn't it? Absolutely. Now that we've seen Universal strike deals with these two major theater chains, we can expect the other theater chains, such as Regal, to also follow in giving the studio the flexibility about how they want to release their films. And I would expect the other movie studios to follow as well. What's so interesting about this, Kelly, is it's not just about shortening the window, it's about giving flexibility. So if a film is doing very well, if a film opens to $50 million or more, part of the deal here is that it will stay in theaters for five full weekends or 31 days. So the idea is to figure out how to maximize the box office and also maximize that premium video on demand revenue, what they call the PVOD revenue, Kelly. Yeah, no, and Leslie, I think it's going to be a move that the theater industry has to embrace. You know, it's just the pandemic, especially people are accustomed to being able to do streaming. I'm not saying they're never going to go back to the theater for that kind of experience. But, you know, this is the cat's out of the bag. Yeah, it's interesting that Cinemark's shares rose higher on this news as well. Obviously, movie theaters have been under pressure throughout the entire pandemic. Consumers are changing the way that they are digesting content. And this is just one example. The question, I think, remains, is this something that kind of continues after things, quote, go back to normal? Uh, or is this something that happened during the pandemic and exists in, and endures even after people are much more willing to go to theaters and see movies three months after they debut. Right, exactly. Uh, I think we all want to talk some Taylor Swift, so I'm just going to move right on to perhaps, you know, the <laughs> biggest story today. Uh, let's do music. The rights to Taylor Swift's first six albums have been sold by celebrity talent manager Scooter Braun to a private equity company for more than $300 million. All right, Julia, there's a lot of really interesting angles to this story. We know that she was upset about the previous sale. This sale, I guess, was an attempt to placate her somewhat and get the, is this not the Disney family's private equity company or something? And, and they were thinking, okay, we're going to, this is going to be good for Taylor. But then she found out that Scooter is still involved. So now she's still upset and re-recording her old music. Do I have it right? 
It's very complicated. Yes, I think you have it right. But yes, to your point about re-recording old music, this is the month that Taylor Swift is free to re-record from her first five albums. Those are the albums that have the rights tied up in this whole situation with Big Machine that were just sold. But what's so interesting is once she re-records them, which she's just able to do now, then she can start to get some of the revenue if those songs are, say, used in commercials or anything like that. So it is very complicated, but I think for Scooter Braun and his big machine label, for them, this is them sort of extricating themselves from this situation and that bad blood, if you will, with Taylor Swift. And I think because of the arrangement and the way the deal worked out, there will be some residual revenue for Taylor, uh, for Scooter Braun and his company over time. But this sort of passes that ownership relationship over to a new company. But at the same time, we have Taylor Swift able to take back control by re-recording her albums. That happens very much at the same time. So right. a lot of stuff happening right at once, Kelly. Mike, I got to give Taylor credit. Of all the stories we cover, hers might be the most complicated <laughs> in terms yes. of this structure. But here's the bottom line. If she re-records her songs... Do you think people will like the new versions better than the old ones? Um, I think enough people will like them. Well, maybe not better, but they'll be willing to, ha to stream those uh, <laughs> or, or anything. And it's interesting that she now has a vested interest economically, and it seems like, as a matter of principle, of diluting the value of her own back catalog. I mean, that's really what she's attempting to do, which is probably maybe why the purchase price for the rights was about what uh, the previous buyer paid for them. So it wasn't as if it got marked up, although we don't really know the terms in terms of whether that, that the, the new buyer participates fully in all the royalties. Yeah, Leslie, we've had this debate uh, in the newsroom in the past, but I'm of the mind, I'm always that person who's disappointed when I hear a song I like live. It's, you know, with a few rare exceptions for the most part, I'm like, you know what, I kind of like the studio track. But others are saying, no, 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 they, they would always rather hear it live. They would always rather hear a different take on their favorite songs. They would always rather, you know, stream those instead. Where do you fall? I'm, I'm with you, Kelly. I like it the original way I heard it, especially if I listened to it, say, 30 times and have memorized all the different intonations of the songs and the singing. <laughs> I usually err toward the original version. And then when things get mixed up and I'm singing along, I'm like, oh, wait, okay. Got to change things up. Yes, exactly. Like they can't hit the high note in the live version, so they go low, but you're going high, and then it just dies. <laughs> All and right, then it's guys, just a mess. thank you. We'll leave it there for today. <laughs> yeah. Leslie Picker, Michael Santoli, and Julia Borston in Rapid Fire. Coming up, we'll speak with the CEO of TripAdvisor, the company announcing a big move into vacation rentals as the holiday travel season approaches. But will rising COVID cases across the country keep travelers home? We'll ask. The stock making a comeback up 30% in the past month, down a little bit today. We're back in a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. A shift from hotels to homes has helped Airbnb swing to a profit in the last quarter as the company does ready for its IPO. Some of the competition is betting that change in travel habits will benefit them, too. That includes TripAdvisor. Seema Modi joins me now with the details and a special guest. Seema? Kelly, Airbnb has disrupted the travel industry in many ways. It's pushed Expedia, Booking, Marriott to invest in their own vacation rental platforms. And that's what travelers are booking. Homes have become increasingly popular during the pandemic as urban residents search for locations outside of cities to work from home. And while Airbnb did see gross bookings fall in the first nine months of the year, it did fare better than its direct competitors, although those numbers account 
for flights and hotels. TripAdvisor wants in on the $70 billion home rental market, building out its own vacation rental site with over 850,000 listings. But CEO Steve Coffer still sees demand over time returning back to hotels. Steve now joins us in Exchange Exclusive. Welcome back. It's good to see you today. Uh, I know you've had a chance to look at the S1, Steve. Uh, your thoughts on its financials. I imagine you're not putting money to work in Airbnb if you think consumers will shift back from homes to hotels over time. Oh, I think it's very, very clear that consumers want choice. And that choice is to stay in a, in a rental, in a secluded part of the world, especially in COVID times. But it's also to stay in a hotel and have that room service and concierge capabilities TripAdvisor's mission is to fulfill the, the dreams, the wishes, the desires of every traveler looking to have a, a great vacation. And we're basically indifferent, whether that's a hotel or a rental or, or anything else. What kind of demand and searches are you seeing on your vacation rental site? I know you've been building your inventory with partnerships with VRBO, among others. Uh, but what does a consumer want when they're looking for a home? And how has that changed with winter now in focus? Well, with COVID times in particular, we saw a drop in demand for the urban apartment uh, type setting and more of the secluded uh, out in the wilderness looking for a place to hike or, uh, or something, you know, frankly, far away from other people, as one could imagine. Uh, but as the great vaccine news that's coming out, as we and so many other companies plan for a robust travel recovery, especially in the leisure sector, we know that demand is going to return to all those wonderful places that everyone loves to go, the big cities, the tours, the activities. And of course, there's uh, no shortage of amazing properties, hotels, uh, as well as rentals to stay at when, uh, uh, when you go to our, our wonderful big cities around the globe. And perhaps it is this robust recovery that you're betting on as to why you're launching this new subscription service, $99 a year. Tell us how this works. And again, the timing of this launch, given that right now we're in a period of time where lockdowns are being reintroduced, kind of hard to see where that rebound or when that rebound in travel will happen. Uh, it is a little hard to predict when, but we're going to be ready. So we've done a lot under the covers at TripAdvisor. We've launched a number of B2B products for our business customers. And then this new TripAdvisor Plus product at $99 a year. Think of it as a travel club. It's a great opportunity to achieve some amazing discounts and perks and be able to save money on not only hotels, but also experiences. So imagine just coming to the site, you're looking, you're using all of our wonderful content, the reviews, the photos, all of the insights into how to have an amazing vacation. And now you get offered the ability to join the, the TripAdvisor Plus membership, save money on the hotel that you want to stay at anyways, save money on all the things that you want to do, and now imagine the opportunity to potentially get a free upgrade when you stay at that hotel, find a nice bottle of room or fruit plate when you arrive, be treated special while you are saving money because the savings on that hotel and experience will more than pay for the subscription cost. And that's what we think of as a travel club or travel program, a subscription service hmm. that, wow, it's just available and exciting to, to pretty much everyone, we hope. The fruit plate sounds good to me, Steve. It's Kelly here, and thanks again for joining us. Can you just give us some color on what you're seeing around the holidays? Um, we're all obviously trying to gauge what's happening with the economy and the spread of COVID. 
Um, can you talk about cancellations, maybe any places where you are still seeing demand, what kind of demand, what that looks like? Sure. So uh, we do have some stats that they may be a couple of weeks old, but travelers were interested in going home for Thanksgiving. With the recent COVID surge, especially in the U.S., we know that that demand is declining, uh, as it should. People really need to stay home if they can, stay safe. If they need to go somewhere, please get tested. Uh, and where we see on our site people are going tends to be the warmer climates, where there's more outdoor space, where you'd still be able to take a walk on the beach, even in Thanksgiving, so a uh, Florida or an Arizona versus where we see travel uh, down pretty sharply, places like uh, New York or, or Boston, the cold northeast. Yeah, that makes sense. Jibes with our experience. Steve, thanks again for joining us and for speaking about all the different initiatives underway. Steve Koffer is CEO of TripAdvisor. And Seema, thank you very, very much for bringing that to us, our Seema Modi. Coming up, coronavirus cases continue to rise in the U.S., and California is now taking dramatic action to stop the spread. We have the details and what it could mean for business across the state. Stay with us. Welcome back. More than 73,000 people are now hospitalized with COVID-19. And as cases continue to surge, SoftBank founder and CEO Masa Sun weighed in on the topic at the NYT DealBook conference earlier today. Of course, the vaccine is coming, uh, medical antibodies coming, but who knows uh, in the next two, three months, any, any uh, disaster could happen. Uh, so... Uh, you know, we, we're just preparing for the worst-case scenario. California, hoping to avoid a worst-case scenario, is now enacting some of the strictest COVID rollback measures yet. Aditi Roy is out there, and she joins us with the details. Aditi? Kelly, a pretty dramatic rollback in California as Governor Gavin Newsom says he's putting the emergency break on COVID reopenings. This, as the state is seeing the fastest increase in COVID cases since the pandemic began doubling over the last 10 days. As a result, California is moving 28 counties back into the purple or the most restrictive tier. 94% of the state's population is now in that zone, including people living right here in Santa Clara County, where I am, and Orange County. Nine counties are back in the red tier, and that includes San Francisco, which moved two levels up from the least restrictive yellow tier. With that move, San Francisco is rolling back the reopening of non-essential offices and will reduce the capacity of gyms to 10%. Meantime, some California elected officials, including Newsom, are facing a backlash over their own gatherings. Newsom has apologized for attending an outdoor birthday dinner for a lobbyist at the Tony French Laundry Restaurant and a group of lawmakers from California, Washington and Texas are also catching heat for attending an annual conference in Maui this week. Kelly. Aditi, thank you very much. Aditi Roy. That does it for the exchange today. We're going to speak coming up with the CEO of Holy Name Medical Center about rising hospitalizations and if we're better prepared during this surge. I'll join John Fort for that on Power Lunch. Stick around. It's right after this. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the... 
trip to Texas. And the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas. Or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.